For me, life stories are more interesting than made-up stories. That's writer A. Scott Berg. This episode is ostensibly about him, but it's also about Max Perkins and Samuel Goldwyn, Charles Lindbergh, Woodrow Wilson, and Katherine Hepburn. Those are the people Scott Berg has written groundbreaking biographies of during his five decades as a writer. The point of biography, even more than learning about a single person's life, is to illustrate the times in which that person lived. And to me, that's as good as or better than any movie you can go to. It's the panorama of life, and that's quite wonderful. And a good biography gives you that. You really are going to another place, and you get to inhabit somebody else's life. I think the best of the biographies are inspirational. I think there are great things you can pull out of it uh, for your own life. And, and, you know, cliche though it may be, I think it is important to know where we've been before you can know where you're going. On this episode, The Chronicler and The Chronicled, Scott Berg talks about the people whose lives have consumed him for the past 50 years, and he pulls back the curtain to reveal the near-monastic, detail-obsessed, and intensely fun process of writing someone else's life story. This is What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adam this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide Today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. (laughs) And then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. There's something a little meta going on here. I am painting a portrait for you of a man who paints portraits of others. There are a few huge differences between us, though. Let's start with the fact that Scott Berg spends almost a decade on each biography he writes, interviewing the descendants of his subjects and first-hand witnesses, plumbing every musty archive to leave no stone unturned. On the other hand, my subject is very much alive and can help tell his own story. It begins, for our purposes, when Scott Berg was a teenager, a television junkie. He could have been a candidate for the least likely to become a writer award, much to the chagrin of his very learned, literate parents. And then, as he told Mary Jordan, who interviewed him in 2018 for the Academy of Achievement, something happened inside him. A pilot light ignited and burst into flames. The book that really did it for me um, was well, actually, it was an assignment in the 11th grade at Palisades High School in Pacific Palisades, California, when each of us had to write a report on an American author. 
and we could select who we wanted to write about. And I came home to discuss this with my parents, and I said, well, I don't know who to write about. And, and my father said, well, of course you don't, because you've never read anybody. Um, and then my mother said, why don't you write about F. Scott Fitzgerald? Um, well, I've never read him. No, of course, said my father, you've never read anybody. Um, and my mother said, well, I named you for him because I was reading F. Scott Fitzgerald when you were born. And my mother, who is really not a collector of things, said, wait a minute. And she went upstairs and she pulled out a box and inside the box was a magazine article about Fitzgerald from the time I was born. And I, I just couldn't believe it. I loved the story. I loved the romance of the story. I loved the tragedy of the story. I just got totally absorbed and obsessed. What about that you were named after? Well, that's no small potatoes. Um, was that the first time you had heard how Yeah, old absolutely. I was 15. Wow. And then my mother said, well, if you like the article, why don't you read the whole book? And she pulled off a shelf, The Far Side of Paradise, a play on his first title, This Side of Paradise. And I sat down and read it. And it was almost the first time I just sat down and read a big boy book, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember discussing it. My mother said, well, if you like that, why don't you read his novels? You know, we have them all here in the house. I said, where, where, you know, in the, in the library. We have a library? Well, the TV room, yeah. Well, all around the TV were hundreds of books. And there they all were. Well, I started with The Great Gatsby for obvious reasons. It was the skinniest. Um, and I, I, remember the, I remember the chair I sat in by the window. I remember the light coming in as I sat there. And, and three hours later, I got up and I had finished the book. And I thought, oh my God. And I had already read the biography of him, so I could see how his life got translated into the art, into the book. Why do you remember even where, where you were sitting? What was it about the words on the page? It was partly the words on the page, and I still think he is the most beautiful writer in American literature, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, but it was also clear, something was happening to me almost physically. Uh, I had always been really too restless to sit three hours for anything other than a really good cartoon show. Um, and here I was, I was just transported. And I had no sense of passage of time except, and, and here's why I remember quite vividly, because I remember I started reading the book a little afternoon when it was quite bright out. And by the time I finished, it was dark and I had to turn on a lamp. And so, uh, it's just a moment that's frozen in time for me. Between age 15 and 17, I really began to read ravenously. And I had, by the time I graduated from high school, uh, four heroes, and I had their pictures up on my bedroom wall. And they were F. Scott Fitzgerald, Adlai Stevenson, uh, who had run for president in 1952 and 1956, uh, Woodrow Wilson, whom I had been reading about, and Don Quixote. And I had their pictures up there. And one day, my senior year in high school, I said, oh, three out of those four went to Princeton. Uh, Don Quixote did not go to Princeton. 
The other three, though, uh, all did. And I thought, that's where I'm going. This is somehow, it's meant for me at least to apply there, if not go there. So then I went off to Princeton in the fall of 1967. I was on campus less than two days before I made my way to the Rare Books and Manuscripts room of Firestone Library. And again, this is another moment that's just forever in my brain. And I walked in and I said to the librarian, do you have anything of F. Scott Fitzgerald's here that I could look at? And she sort of looked at me like, oh dear, sit down. <laughs> you know, and um, five minutes later, she came up with a cart. She said, well, I pulled just a few boxes for you. And I remember opening the first box and there, <laughs> there was the first draft of The Great Gatsby written in pencil. You're so emotional boxes. talking about it That's, now. Well, it's, what was it when you opened that box? Well, what, I, what, what it was when I opened the box was what happened when I first opened the book three years prior, which was, or two and a half years prior, only two and a half years prior, that lights went on. I mean, neon lights went on. I mean, uh, I was born somehow. Um, it was the first time I felt I was really kicking into my brain. I had the absolute origin. I could, I, and because I could see erasures and crossouts, I could see the activity from his brain down his arm to his hand. Uh, and all that just moved me so terribly. And as you pointed out, it, it moves me to this minute. The F. Scott Fitzgerald collection opened up the world of research for A. Scott Berg. The A is for Andrew, by the way. And more specifically, it opened the world of research into primary source materials. There were Scott Fitzgerald's liquor bills. There were galley proofs with his corrections from Tenders the Night. There, were, there was a scrapbook that his wife Zelda had kept. And I thought, oh my God, I mean, this is archaeology. It's just, I mean, all these things I can play with and somehow learn more about literature, about American culture, about myself. And, and then I remember after a few hours, I asked the librarian, what do I have to do to see more? And she said, well, you have to be here between 9 and 4.45, Monday through Friday. The hours in Princeton's Firestone Library turned into days and then weeks. Along the way, Scott Berg kept stumbling into the name Max Perkins. Max Perkins was F. Scott Fitzgerald's editor. As Berg dove into each successive draft of The Great Gatsby, he could see it evolving into a masterpiece based largely on Max Perkins' criticisms and suggestions. And that really caught his attention, he told journalist Gail Eichenthal, who conducted an earlier interview with Berg for the Academy of Achievement 20 years ago. Perkins struck me almost from the beginning as perhaps the most important but least known person in American literature. This is where the creative process was really going on. I mean, yes, Scott Fitzgerald getting drunk and swimming in the fountain at the Plaza Hotel, all that's kind of fun. But this is the good stuff. What was going on in the heads of these people? Then, again, another sign from heaven or something. While I was at Princeton, 
All the archives of the Scribner Publishing House, of Charles Scribner's sons, had just been delivered to Princeton. So every letter Max Perkins ever sent to one of his authors, Fitzgerald Hemingway, Wolf, Ring Lardner, Taylor Caldwell, Alan Payton, James Jones, all those letters were sitting in the library. Incoming letters from all those authors were there, and nobody had really gone through them. So I thought, this is just, it's being sent to me. I'm being told, do this, do this. So I did, I seized it. Scott Berg decided there was more than enough material to make editor Max Perkins the subject of his senior thesis. And even at 18 years of age, he already had an inkling it would make a good book, too. I think what is so intriguing about Perkins is how he sublimated his ego. This was a man who truly loved literature, and he wanted to be part of it, and he knew this was the way to do it. And he realized that, and, and in this regard, Max Perkins was revolutionary. He realized the time a writer really needed someone was before the book was finished. Uh, before Max Perkins came along, editors were really, it was a mechanical job. Uh, a writer would submit a manuscript and the editor would check the spelling and punctuation and off it would go to the printer and that was that. Perkins was really the first one to make creative suggestions and also the first one to realize that the editor could or should play some of these other roles and become a friend, a parent, a, a, an analyst, a father confessor for his writers. And that is what Perkins did. And so he not only revolutionized the job of editing, but the course of American literature. When Scott Berg graduated, his thesis advisor implored him to stick with the project and turn his thesis into a biography. Berg started to imagine a collection of six biographies he could write on different iconic American figures. But first he had to see if he had it in him to write one. He did, but it was a long process, one that required Scott Berg to move back home and stay there, supported by his parents, until he was 27 and a half years old and had completed Max Perkins' Editor of Genius. His parents didn't mind because they could hear him all those years clattering away on his typewriter 14 hours a day. So that was the gift they gave me, and that, that was awfully nice, and it was much appreciated. It wasn't until the book was finished that my parents said, you know, at night, at one in the morning, and we'd hear the typewriter going, we used to ask ourselves, what if it's terrible? <laughs> Did you ever think that? What if it's terrible? I've yes. spent all of this time. Yes. I often thought, what if it's terrible? And I thought, that's going to be OK. Because, well, oh, uh, I don't want you to think I talk to pictures, but I had hanging over my desk when I was writing Max Perkins a portrait of Max Perkins that his daughters had given me. And at the end of each day, I would say, did I give you an honest day's work? And if I didn't, I'd stay up and keep working. And if I did, I would go to bed that night. So. Doing that, working 27 days a month, uh, 14 hours a day, I told myself, if this book comes out, if people say it's terrible, or if nobody publishes it, or if it doesn't sell three copies, I will at least be able to say I did the best I could 
And you know what, Scott? You're in the wrong business. <laughs> and then you won the National Book Award. Yeah, so it worked. Yeah. So it was a gamble. I mean, <laughs> talk about early success. Your yeah, first it was good. book. It was good. And it, and it became a bestseller. And everybody said, a book about a book editor, a bestseller, you know? I mean, even the publishers were shocked. When Somehow you have early, huge success, National Book Award, your first book, then you win the Pulitzer. Does it, do you get, is it difficult now? You're working on a new book. With, we're going to talk about Thurgood Marshall. Are you, do you feel like, oh, my gosh, I have to win yet another award? I don't. I don't think that. And, and in a way, each of those made it so much easier for me because it's like I don't have to prove myself. I mean, I still basically work the same hours I did uh, when I was 22 writing Max Perkins. I still go about my work the same. Do you still not tape your interviews? No, I do not tape interviews. I That's am. incredible to me. You write them longhand. You must have good handwriting. Uh, well, I'd let you be the judge if you looked at my pad. Uh, I mean, I do a version of speed writing at this point, you know, I mean, uh, but I go and I show up with a stenographer's pad and a pen, and then I'll ease into the conversation, and may I write that down? That's really interesting. And then I just pick up the pen. And I found, you see, Back when I started doing interviews for Max Perkins, and again, I was just showing up a pad and pen, the first question I got from a lot of people, and this was the early 70s, am I being taped? And older people especially, the tape recorder was still a new contraption and reel to reel, and it was swirling around, and it was like, ooh, I don't want to do that. And one of the other advantages is that writing longhand forces him to be selective. Burke says that the nonfiction writers he knows who do use tape recorders, which is just about all of them, find that when they transcribe their recordings, 96% of what they have is useless, whereas he's already called the best stuff as he's taking notes and can use almost everything he's written down. But mind you, that doesn't mean he's cranking his books out quickly. Take Goldwyn, for example, the title of his next biography, which came out 11 years after the first. After I had done Max Perkins, who was Harvard-educated, East Coast, um, ninth-generation white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, I thought the next person I'd like to write about would be in some ways the opposite, if I could. And I ended up writing about Samuel Goldwyn, the film mogul, uh, who was a first-generation Jewish immigrant, teenage runaway, uh, who went to the West Coast and basically started something we now call Hollywood. And then... Again, a really big topic. <laughs> well, that's a really big topic. The guy who started Hollywood, <laughs> who actually began in another country with another name. He wasn't Sam Gold. Yes, he was Schmuel Gelbfish in Warsaw, Poland. Life under the Tsar was pretty miserable in Warsaw's Jewish ghetto. So at 14 or 15... Shmuel Gelbfish said goodbye to his widowed mother and his five siblings and literally walked across Europe before making it to England and then Canada with money he stole. Then he walked across the border into the United States. Scott Berg picks up the story from here. He told it during a speech at the Academy of Achievement's Los Angeles Summit in 2006. And he finally arrived in this country at the turn of the century. 
an illegal alien, I should point out also. He immediately went not to New York City, but he went upstate to Gloversville, New York, where he became a glove maker. He literally learned how to cut the leather, and he did this for several years. And after cutting gloves, he became a glove salesman. And after a few years of that, he became the greatest glove salesman in the United States. And he was now, though, living in New York City, making a very good income. He had a wife. Um, he just had a child. And one day, walking home from his office in the summer of 1913, he stopped at 42nd Street into one of those new things, one of those new movie theaters. It was really a Nickelodeon. And in that moment that he walked into the theater, he saw a cowboy named Bronco Billy. And he saw Bronco Billy jump from a moving train onto a galloping horse. And that was it. Samuel Goldman became undone. And he decided in that moment that he wanted to change his life. He was then in his 30s. But he decided then that he wanted to go into the motion picture business, which really at that stage was not much of a business. So he went to his brother-in-law, a man named Jesse Lasky, who had, was a vaudevillian. He was then a producer. He had earlier had a cornet act with his sister. And the brother-in-law said, no, the movies, they're really, you know, we use them in vaudeville basically to chase people out of the theaters at the end of the show. We put on a little short movie, and then the people know it's time to go. Goldwyn believed that this might have a future, these motion pictures. And he began fishing around for a story, a play, some property that he might turn into a real full-length motion picture. Goldwyn picked a play, both a Western and a love story, to maximize its appeal, and he optioned it. He found actors to star in it, and he hired another actor to direct it, a guy named Cecil B. DeMille. He put them and their small crew on a train headed to Flagstaff, Arizona, to make the picture. When they got to Flagstaff, they didn't like what they found. And so they just hopped back on the train and went to the end of the line. And two days later, Jesse Lasky sent a telegram back to Sam Goldfish, back in the front office in New York, that said, as Jesse Lasky remembers it anyway, Flagstaff, no good for our purposes, have rented a barn in a place called Hollywood. And that was it. They rented a barn in a place called Hollywood. And there they set out to make the first feature-length film in this place. Now, what else they found when they got off that train was rather magical. You know, I, when I was writing my Goldwyn book, I interviewed scores of people who were here in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, in the teens, in the 20s, in the 30s. And they said the first thing you noticed when you walked off the train was the smell of the orange blossoms. So they found this wonderful air. They had the water there. They literally had the Pacific Ocean that they could film. They had, within a few hours of that, they could go up to the mountains and be in the snow. Within a few hours of that, they could be in the desert. They could film anything they wanted here in this one city. And there was virtually endless sunlight. So what wonderful thing for filmmakers to have. It really was a kind of paradise. 
And imagine what that paradise was like for Shmuel Gelbfish, Samuel Goldfish, who just 10, 15 years earlier had been living in a ghetto in Warsaw. Now, in the same moment that Samuel Goldfish is smelling this fragrant air, the same thing was happening, amazingly. Five or six men were living parallel lives. A man named Laser Bear Mayer changed his name to Louis B. Mayer. And he became a junk dealer, first in Canada and then outside of Boston. A man named Benjamin Warner, uh, he left Hungary as well, was a cobbler, a furrier, and he had a couple of sons. He had Harry, Al, Sam, and Jack, among others. And these Warner brothers decided they were going to go in the movie business as well. It is hard for me to describe how great this explosion was. I'm, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to give you a modern analog of anything that has happened since. I mean, imagine a bunch of young entrepreneurs who are all entering a brand new field based on some new technology. Hundreds of startup companies within one or two years, most of them go belly up, leaving those few survivors as overnight bazillionaires. Has it ever happened since? I'm going to go home tonight. I'm going to Google. I'm going to find out. <laughs> As a result of the huge success they had with it, they got to live the American dream and then peddle that all around the world. What year are we talking now? We are now talking between 1913 and 1923. Wow. And in that decade, that's when he started uh, four studios, uh, but because of a terrible temperament, horrible personality, got kicked out of three of them, um, which became Paramount, uh, United Artists, uh, and MGM. And then in 1923, he started a company called Samuel Goldwyn Productions, figured, I can't work with partners, they can't work with me, I better just have my own company. And Did so you pick him? I'm so interested <clears throat> in your choices, because once you pick, you could spend and have a decade on that person. So it's critical you pick well. Yes. And I should tell you, a lot of this are very happy accidents, which is to say, I didn't one day say, I think I'll write about Sam Goldwyn. I got a phone call from Samuel Goldwyn Jr., who said, my father died a few years ago. Uh, before he died, he wanted one thing, that I get somebody to write a biography of him. And he said, I, I want the book to tell the truth. And so I want to be dead when it's published. <laughs> um, so Sam Goldwyn Jr. said, and I have two vaults full of archives. And, and we met, uh, and I told him I wasn't sure I really wanted to do a Hollywood book. I wanted to for cultural reasons, but I said there's a big problem doing a Hollywood book. Archives barely exist for these Hollywood figures. They were mostly semi-literate East European immigrants um, who didn't keep diaries, didn't write masses of letters and things. You know, these were guys who barked out memos. And, and basically what had been written about them, even in their lifetimes, were mostly press releases that they put out about themselves. So I said, it's going to be very hard to tell the truth about your father. And he said, well, why don't you go look at the archives first, look at these two rooms filled with papers. 
And as soon as I did that, within an hour, I knew, oh my God, I've got the goods here to do it. Let's talk about truth for a second. When you're researching and you're going back in time and you're piecing together what happened, um, sometimes there's several versions of the truth. How do you figure out what's the best version to tell everybody when you're trying to piece together a life? Well, you know, one of the biographer's biggest challenges is to find the truth. Well, I think anybody who's writing nonfiction uh, in journalism, what's the truth? Uh, in my case, it is to collect as many voices as I can, do as much research as I can on those voices to see who might have a hidden agenda of his or her own, and then um, see how much can be played against documents uh, a paper trail that might corroborate one person's story over another. And then I just basically uh, lay them all out and put them on a scale and weigh them. Uh, and as a rule, one hears consensus, but then, boy, then you hear somebody who was actually in the room who said, no, that isn't what happened. What I will often do if I have, say, two or three wildly conflicting versions of the same story, I'll present them all in the book. It was especially tough to ferret out the wily truth when he got to work on his third biography, Lindbergh. Scott Berg likes to think of each of his books as a slice of 20th century American pie. He'd already finished an East Coast slice and a West Coast slice, and now it was time for a Midwestern tale. I began to think, what are the great metaphors of of 20th century American culture, the way the motion picture camera is. And I thought, well, the airplane is, you know, very American. Whose life will let me tell uh, the story of aviation? And then, of course, Lindbergh's life was so much more than that. Um, and it got into, of course, the kidnapping of his, of his child, the, the crime of the century, the trial of the century. And the later accusations that he was an anti-Semite and a Nazi sympathizer. But Berg began his biography of Charles Lindbergh at the high point. Charles Lindbergh, in May of 1927, became the first person to fly nonstop, solo, across the Atlantic Ocean from New York to Paris. Woke up the next morning. A million people were outside his window wherever he went, in Paris, then France, then Europe. He went to England. Hundreds of thousands, millions of people wherever he went. Then he came back to America, a million people waiting for him in Washington, D.C. He went up to New York City with a population of three million. The crowd was four million who had come to see Charles Lindbergh. The week Lindbergh came home, the United States of America closed. Wall Street was closed, every bank was closed, every school was closed. Everything was shut down for Charles Lindbergh. And do you think that was because he represented the future, progress? You didn't, wouldn't take months to cross an ocean, you could do it in hours? It, it was this incredible confluence of technologies, primarily. When Lindbergh made his flight, starting on May 20th, 1927, at Roosevelt Field, Long Island. For the first time, there were motion picture cameras with sound attached that could create a newsreel. 
which could be in a theater within hours. So that meant before Lindbergh had even landed, people could go to a theater and see and hear Charles Lindbergh's plane, The Spirit of St. Louis, taking off. For the first time, photographs could be sent across the ocean. Radio now was connecting the civilized world. So this became the first event in history that could be shared instantaneously and simultaneously across the globe. And now, at the center of this phenomenon, is this 25-year-old boy who's, who's a movie star. I mean, he has beautiful blue eyes, perfect teeth, you know, blonde hair. He's just, he was this Nordic god. And he was a Boy Scout. I mean, he was this great symbol of American purity. Uh, we who were just coming into our own having won World War I. And so he became this great image, an icon, not just of, of the perfect American, but almost the perfect human being. I mean, he was godlike. And then in the 1930s, his baby is kidnapped and killed. The Lindberghs get threats on their second baby, realize they can't live here anymore. They move to England, they move to France, living on a little island. And it was while they were living over in Europe, Lindbergh heard from uh, somebody in the, in the American embassy in Berlin. He was our air attache a man named Colonel Truman Smith. And Truman Smith, this is now 1936, is quite worried about the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe that is being built up. And it's very mysterious. And Truman Smith thought, we, we know nothing about what the Germans are doing. And he then read that the Lindberghs were living in England. And he thought, boy, I'll bet if we could get Charles Lindbergh over here, just to make a quick trip, the Germans would be so flattered, so thrilled, they will show off everything they've got. And so Lindbergh then paid six visits to Nazi Germany. And there were photos of those. Photos of them, and indeed some of the photos were a little scary because you'd see, a you'd see newsreel footage of Charles Lindbergh walking out of some Nazi building and everyone would seek hiring. Well, then it's like, well, what's Charles Lindbergh doing over in Berlin? Why are people saluting him? And why did he leave America in the first place? And what people did not realize is he was doing these missions for the U.S. government. And getting intelligence that was valuable. Gathering extremely important intelligence, not just on the planes that had been manufactured, but the capabilities of their factories because they showed off their factories. So he was really there doing this great service that he could not talk about. Now, he was thinking of moving there, actually, uh, most especially because they had the greatest air force in the world at that point. And it was during that period, so it's now November of 1938, that Kristallnacht occurred, when the Jews were being visibly rounded up and shipped away. And that was the moment Lindbergh said, I've got to get out of here. I've got to come home. And he and his wife packed up, took their family, went back to America. 
his first stop is to go to, to Washington. And he met with Roosevelt and said, Mr. President, I have to warn you what's happening over there. It's very dire. And everybody, including Roosevelt, said, oh, don't worry. We have the greatest navy in the world. And, and Lindbergh's saying, there's a war about to break out that is not about navies. It's about air forces. Then Lindbergh became the face of the America First movement, which Scott Berg says is little understood today. And we hear the phrase America First today, and it means one thing. But in 1940 and 1941, America First was an organization started by four or five young law students. And their names were Sergeant Shriver, Gerald Ford, Potter Stewart, Kingman Brewster, who became the president of Yale and ambassador to Great Britain, and a man uh, named Bob Stewart, uh, who uh, was an heir to the Quaker Oats fortune and family and job business. And Lindbergh was giving speeches around the country saying two things. There's a war about to break out in Europe. We must stay out of this war. It's not an American war. It's the same war Europe has been fighting for 500 years. But second, most important, America has no defenses to deal with a war. We must build up an air force. We must be prepared to defend America first. These wars in Europe are not wars in which our civilization is defending itself against some Asiatic intruder. If we enter fighting for democracy abroad, we may end by losing it at home. And those five guys up at Yale heard Lindbergh give a speech, and they said, ooh, let's, make, let's join our organization with him. He'll love us. We'll love him. And they did. And for the next two years, America First became uh, this powerful movement in this country, such that up until September of 1941, three months before Pearl Harbor, most of the country sided with Lindbergh over Franklin Roosevelt, who was trying to get us into the war. And then in September, Lindbergh felt things were getting shaky, and he gave a speech that was a little desperate. And in the speech, which he gave in Des Moines in September of, of, um, of 41, he said there are three groups who want us in the war. Most Americans don't want to be in it, but these three groups want us in there. And those three groups are the New Dealers, the pro-British, and the Jews. That was it. And suddenly in that moment, and his wife warned him not to say that in his speech, he said, no, no, because my next paragraph explains that I understand why the Jews want us in the war. They should want that, except it's going to be trouble for them because people will then blame the Jews for America going to war. But the speech went on in which he talked about Jewish ownership of the media, and things got worse. And that was it. And he got on a train after the speech, and he thought everything's okay. When, when he arrived in New York a day later and looked at a newspaper, the whole myth of Lindbergh had just exploded. It had vanished. And what he had done, in essence, was say that there are two agendas in this country. There's an American agenda, and there's a Jewish agenda. And that, whether you like it or not, whether you like him or not, that's anti-Semitic. <laughs> that basically says, you're not a full American. 
And now everyone is piecing together, wait a minute, we saw Lindbergh in Nazi Germany and people are Sieg Heiling and we saw him with, he never was able to pull it all back together again. But your book does. Thank you. My book certainly tries at least to lay it out. How many years did you spend on this? Uh, on Lindbergh, that was 10 years. And the interesting thing, and, and it's one of the most interesting parts of my job, actually, is going through archives, going through diaries, where I know what happens, <laughs> and they don't. <laughs> I mean, Anne Morrow Lindbergh, one of the great diarists of the 20th century, is writing about, well, when her baby was kidnapped. I'm, you know, I know we'll find the baby tomorrow, and I know this baby is dead. <laughs> What's that doesn't. like? It's chilling. And sometimes, I mean, literally, it's sometimes not it's sometimes difficult to sit there and just not weep. I mean... Uh, Do you weep? Yes, there have been a couple of occasions where I have. One occasion I had was um, when I was reading Ann Lindbergh's diaries about the kidnapped baby, and I was reading her diaries and letters she was sending to her dearest, dearest friends, uh, how difficult it was mostly because Charles would not let her cry in his presence. And so she wrote about how she used to have to stifle her cries into a pillow at night after he had fallen asleep. Wow. Before we move on to Berg's biography of Woodrow Wilson, let's return here to talk about Scott Berg himself. He says one of the biggest tasks of his job as a biographer is to carve drama out of the raw, factual material he gathers. In short, to tell a great story. His routine when he gets to the writing part of each project is always the same. He goes into his office right after breakfast, sits at the huge desk that belonged to his grandfather, and writes for a few hours. So I'm sitting there, usually until about 12.30, Uh, when I break for the Bold and Beautiful and I have lunch. Um, I've been with the Bold and Beautiful since their first episode, actually, and was watching The Young and the Restless before that. What is the Bold and Beautiful? Oh, my gosh. Don't get me started. Uh, Soap opera. A soap opera. It's it's just the most wonderful soap opera that ever lived. Um, And I began breaking for soap operas when I was writing Max Perkins, actually. And because I live in silence most of the day, I would come in for lunch and I would just turn on the television set just to have some noise. And then suddenly, oh, these people have really intriguing lives. Um, So, you know, so I just dove in and it's just part of my routine and it kind of calms me down for the most part, except, oh, every now and then some people act up. After he catches up with his soap, he writes until dinner, and sometimes after dinner, too, up to 14 hours a day. And he follows the advice Max Perkins used to give to all of his writers, whether Fitzgerald or Hemingway, get it down on paper, and then we'll see what to do with it. For Berg, what that means is he just needs to get the words out. Then the rewriting is easy. And there's another technique he learned 50 years ago. Hemingway said, always quit while you're going good. Always, I mean, even if it's in the middle of a sentence, and I will very often, when I'm writing in the, just just cruising at 30,000 feet, I will just stop in the middle of a sentence. And then when I come in the next day, I know right where to pick up. I don't have to spend an hour 
I don't have to spend five seconds trying to figure out where I was going next. I just finish the sentence and I know where the paragraph's gonna end and then I'm right into what I was doing. So I do that and then- That seems so risky because <clears throat> what if you wrote a beautiful <laughs> passage next if you hadn't stopped? I have to believe that the one I'm gonna write tomorrow is gonna be even better. Mary Jordan found Scott Burke extremely dynamic, affable, and talkative during their conversation, as you might imagine from listening. And she found it a little hard to reconcile that guy with the one who spends years on end by himself writing quietly, or in libraries poring over dusty documents in dim lighting. She asked him if he ever finds that work depressing. It, it can be, and it often is. And I will tell you something, and this may be the real answer to your question about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, because I had not written. I mean, I had never written anything longer than a school paper before I did my senior thesis, which turned out to be 250 pages. I mean, it just poured out of me. But what I encountered early in my research was something Max Perkins had said. Uh, Max Perkins, greatest book editor in American literature, studied economics when he went to Harvard. And somebody said, well, why economics? Why aren't you studying literature? And he said, I pride myself in doing the things I don't like to do, not the things I do like to do. And in a way, I, I kept hearing that when I was expanding my senior thesis into a book sitting alone in the room, taking, you know, taking notes, trying to make sense of the notes, trying to write every day. I think that's the hardest thing for me. I had, well, all through college, for example, I had always been extremely gregarious. Um, and I was a very social creature. So I thought, well, maybe this is a time to turn it off, you know, and see what happens. What happens if I go still? What happens if I go completely inward? Um, I don't mean to be glib or superficial about it, but I ended up, by choosing the hardest thing in the world for me, finding a profession in which I love every aspect of it. I love doing research by myself. I love writing when it's pouring out. I'm a real school marm, so I, I love rewriting and going over galleys and doing punctuation and capital letters and getting your adverbial clause correct. Love all that. Just doing this almost monastic work of, you know, illuminating manuscripts. <laughs> Where did this I, need to stre stretch yourself come from? Well, or flagellating yourself. Um, a lot of it, strangely, I picked up more and more of it from Max Perkins because he was very much that way. And it's hard to spend 10 years with somebody and not have their personalities start bleeding into you, start infusing your own chemistry. And that was clearly happening with me and Perkins. Uh, and uh, he had a great phrase about being rigorous for duty. And I thought, well, boy, I, I like being rigorous. I like duty. And, and let's see how far I can take this. You become, as everyone always says, like those that you spent time with. Tell me who your company is, and I'll tell you who I'll you are. I'll tell you who you are, exactly. Right? Well, so what else have you learned from some of the people that you have literally spent a decade 
They're in your brain for a decade. What have I've, you learned? I've, I have learned a lot from each of them. Uh, Perkins clearly was this sense of duty and, and his great love of, of literature. Uh, Samuel Goldwyn, who was so impossible, I mean really impossible, but he had one fantastic trait. Here's a man who got kicked out of one company after another and he kept bouncing back. He was like that, you know, those childhood inflatable clowns and you punch it down and it just pops right back up. And, and, and actually that Goldwyn book was a tough book to write in a lot of ways. Um, and there were times I really did think, I just, I just can't do this any longer as we're into year eight and nine and actually even 10 on that. Um, but I kept thinking, yeah, what made him so resilient? What made him bounce back? Uh, in the case of Charles Lindbergh, uh, I think I further developed this sense of purpose and a way to get from A to B. And whether A to B is to get from New York to Paris or to get from the beginning of this book to the end, but I got from him, I think, a sense of orderliness and that there are lots of problems, but you can break down problems into small pieces. And then uh, Woodrow Wilson, um, I think, and, and actually this is a, a piece in the lives of all the heroes who are on my wall, my Scott Fitzgerald, my Don Quixote, my Adlai Stevenson, and Woodrow Wilson. Uh, there was a sense of romance um, that was there even in times of tragedy. And it's not just about uh, rose-colored glasses and seeing just the beautiful parts, but it's knowing that there are beautiful parts and that life is tough, that it's full of struggle. Woodrow Wilson you know, gave his life fighting for a dream, and yet he never stopped fighting for it. <laughs> and the, that particular dream was? In the case of Woodrow Wilson, that dream really was his League of Nations, which was a sense of world order and peace, and that World War I, which he brought his country into, uh, might have been the war to end all wars. And that was a very noble thing. Woodrow Wilson was the subject of Scott Berg's fifth biography and his most recent. He was also a fellow Princeton grad. Another Princetonian, yeah. You believe that he's not just a towering figure, but the towering figure of the 20th century? What do I, you think? I, I think 20th century America begins with Woodrow Wilson. Um, basically the modern economy that begins with the Federal Reserve Board, uh, whether it's our foreign policy, which goes directly back to a single sentence in a single speech that Woodrow Wilson gave in 1917. Um, the, just the way we live, who we are, um, so many traditions that we presume have been around for hundreds of years began with Woodrow Wilson, uh, whether it's holding press conferences, whether it's the president delivering the State of the Union address, all these things are Wilsonian, um, and some of them not so good. So much of the uh, modern civil rights movement really begins with neglect on Woodrow Wilson's part in 1919, I believe. The modern civil rights movement is very much on Scott Berg's mind these days. He is a couple of years into the research for his sixth biography, Another Massive Undertaking. Right now, you're 
living right steps away from the Library of Congress as you research your next book, I Thurgood am. Marshall. Why Thurgood Marshall? Well, after, after doing four or five slices of my pie, Max Perkins, Sam Goldwyn, uh, Charles Lindbergh, Woodrow Wilson, and parenthetically a memoir I did about my friend Catherine Hepburn, whom I got to know over the years and got to know for 20 years, I thought I possibly have one more big 10-year job in me uh, before the brain goes. And what do I want to write about? Uh, and what segment of American culture have I not written about? And I thought, I think the most important issue that this country must deal with, and what I would like to wrestle with, is race in America. And I began to think, whose life will let me explore race in 20th century America? And all roads kept leading to Thurgood Marshall, uh, not just because he was the first African-American on the Supreme Court, but even more uh, for his legal career that led up to that. Um, in which he was such a pioneer and was so wildly successful and I think really made the civil rights movement as we know it. And there were a lot of heroes out there and there were a lot of people getting hit with baseball bats. But while marches were going on and, and while riots were in the street, there was a man sitting in courthouses who was getting the laws changed. And and this is one of the reasons I wanted to write a biography of Marshall. Uh, people are forgetting who he is or they never knew who he was. And, and I really want to rectify that. I want people to know that a man named Thurgood Marshall lived and he did this and this and this. And society changed drastically because of his presence. And so I've been working on that for two years now. And we'll see how it goes. What do you think is going to be the biggest challenge with this book? Oh, gosh. The biggest challenge in writing the life of Thurgood Marshall is going to be humanizing him. Because he, he was a very earthy fellow. But he was so heroic on so many levels. I walk to the apartment I'm living in blocks away from the Library of Congress each day, and I thought, this man did that? And then he did this, and I mean, the accomplishments are so overwhelming. And I don't want my book to be uh, the life of a saint or the life of a comic book hero. Uh, but in some ways, he, he is so much bigger than life. So for the next few years, he'll keep talking to people who knew and worked with Thurgood Marshall. He'll find witnesses to the events of the time. He'll pour through millions of pages of transcripts and memoranda and letters. And it's in those details that Scott Berg, biographer, will find a way to tell a riveting story about Thurgood Marshall, the human being. And then A. Scott Berg will have finished the six huge slices of the 20th century American pie he set out to write as a young man 50 years ago. Each slice a different flavor but with a common ingredient, the American dream. For me, the American dream is endless possibility. For me personally, it's the ability to have um, a life uh, doing just what I want. 
I think the arts are extremely important in, in a nation's culture, in the world's culture. Uh, but I don't think the world owes artists a living. And I have been lucky enough in writing about the American Dream and American Dreamers uh, to find a way to live my own and, and hope that my books somehow make a contribution to our better understanding of what the dream is and that maybe some of these lives I write about will inspire other people to go on to actualize their dreams. Scott Berg spoke with radio journalist Gail Eichenthal in 1999 and with Mary Jordan, political correspondent at the Washington Post in 2018, both for the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes. What It Takes is funded generously by the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation. We thank them for their support, and we thank you for listening.